Welcome to another episode of the Life Plus God podcast. My name is Alyssa Robinson. I'm your host. And today I have with me our senior pastor, Reverend Daniel Humbert. Welcome once again, Daniel. Hey, hey, good to be here. And today we are asking maybe one of the biggest questions in the past 2000 years, (laughs) (laughs) at least in our faith practice, who is Jesus of Nazareth? And the reason that I wanted to ask this question, even though it sounds very high level and general, uh, is I think that a lot of us are given the opportunity to share about Jesus, but when that opportunity strikes us, maybe we freeze up Hmm. or we don't know exactly what to say or we get twisted over our words because we live in a world where most people have heard of Jesus. Mm. Most people know something about Jesus, but I think that we've all had that moment of someone letting us share our faith and then kind of our brain scrambles and we don't know <laughs> where to go. And so I, I reached out to Daniel and I was like, hey, I have this idea if you're, if you're game for it. And he is. So uh, I have not shown Daniel any of these questions that uh, I'm going to ask today. And we're going to approach this conversation as if I'm a person who has never heard of Jesus, doesn't really know much, um, and he's going to try and answer my questions. So it's very brave of you <laughs> to do this today. Well, I, I reckon, Gully, we can either cancel, edit, or cut the whole thing. So yeah. What the heck? Well, and I did promise this would be an, uh, this would not be a stump the pastor scenario <laughs> yeah. where I'm trying to uh, find these overwhelming questions. But Daniel did challenge me and say, "Hey." It, it, your email kind of made me laugh. He said, hey, <laughs> you might want to, I'm willing to do this as long as you get with a friend who yeah. maybe yeah. didn't grow up knowing about Jesus, because even though you are a renegade Christ follower, <laughs> which is what you called me, that made me laugh. Even though you're a renegade Christ follower, you have your own biases having grown up in the church. Yep. So I did exactly that. I I met with uh, one of my really good friends. She grew up Buddhist and she um, became a Christian after meeting her wife and was recently baptized. But she has so many questions about who Jesus is and who this guy is. So I sat down with her on Saturday and I wrote verbatim questions from Lee Tang about Jesus. There you go. Um, So I think that they're they're very genuine. We'll call those genuine. Yeah. 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 Um, So where I want to start... Because like I said, sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our heads around getting the story of Jesus out. If you were to give just a basic elevator pitch of who Jesus is, what would you say? Wow. What I would say is Jesus is the Son of God, as our faith claims, that, that God had a child, uh, created a child, and so God, Jesus is God's Son, but Jesus is also a prophet and what we know as a Savior. And so a prophet means God, that he speaks on behalf of God, kind of tells people about God, and Savior means he offers us a pathway to uh, what we would call salvation, how we understand salvation. Mm. So when they call him Jesus of Nazareth, what does that mean? Is that meaningful 
using the word Nazareth instead of maybe Jesus of Bethlehem or yeah. Jesus of somewhere else. Yeah. Well, so Jesus existed in a time frame in history where last names were not common and, and used, right? And so Christ is not Jesus's last name, right? And so uh, a, a geographic location was helpful to kind of identify. And in the day and time, it would help you know, okay, that's Jesus of Nazareth versus Jesus who might be from another community. They would be small enough that they might know the difference. And then historically and or faithfully, it would make a difference uh, because of what Old Testament or Hebrew scripture would have identified. Because part of what comes into play, we don't have to spend time here, but part of what comes into play is there was a belief that, golly, nothing good could come out of Nazareth, so how in the world could a Savior come from Nazareth? So that's why it would become important to a certain degree. Mm. Okay, now those were just my openers. Okay, okay. <laughs> now, oh, I thought we were going home. Yeah, now these these are the questions for directly from Lee, and I kept them in the order that she was thinking of them because it was kind of sporadic of one question would lead to another question would lead to another question that weren't necessarily in a specific order, but I okay. also feel like that's the way these conversations kind of come at sure. us yeah, sometimes. Absolutely. So her first question was, did Jesus always know his destiny? Did he receive like a calling? I'm putting in air quotes. Um, she just was, how much did he know yeah. that was going to happen? Yeah. Well, number one, that's a great question. And I think uh, to a certain degree, all of us wrestle with that, whether we're longtime followers of Jesus or, or brand new. Uh, and so I just, uh, my short and simple answer is I don't think he knew from the get-go, and we certainly don't have in Scripture a, a lot of information at all about Jesus's childhood or even adolescence, right? There's a couple of verses uh, in Luke's Gospel that talk about his adolescence. And yet at the same time, even that, that little bit of what we have probably suggests he, he knew something, because his literal comment back to his parents when he was an adolescent, now one could argue it was an adolescent response, but was, you should have known I'd be in my father's house, I'm doing my father's work kind of a deal, right? So to a degree, I think Jesus must have known. Theologically, I won't go too far down a rabbit trail here, but theologically one would say, not not sort of historically or factually, but theologically one would say, if he's been with God from the very beginning, as John's gospel tells us, he must have known. But sort of historically, it seems like in his humanity, he may not have known everything. Mm. She also wanted to know, what was Jesus's day-to-day -day like? We know a lot <laughs> about his ministry, but she's basically like, what we see is Instagram Jesus. You yeah. know how like you only see the big things on social media. You don't see the everyday occurrences. Um, and she, she wanted to know like, what did he do in his downtime? Did he get married? Did he have kids? Like, do we know anything about Jesus's day-to-day -day living? Yeah, the short answer is no, we don't. Uh, though I can, you know, we can all conjecture a lot of different things. Like I can conjecture as an adult, Jesus probably had in some of his downtime some really frustrating thoughts and things about his friends we call the disciples because they, they were messed up and they didn't get it and they didn't understand who he was. And yet he invested heavily in them in terms of his time, energy, and effort, right? 
So I can well imagine there were days that he went home with a headache. Mm. I can imagine there were days when he thought to himself, why, God? Now, these are just my imaginations. I don't have a clue. Now, in terms of family, Scripture is clear that Jesus never got married, never had kids. There are some conjectures, they're very minimal, uh, that he may have had a relationship with this woman named Mary Magdalene. But Scripture doesn't justify that. Even even at what are known as extra-biblical sources don't really justify that. That's really conjecture by some folks. Mm. Well, and what about... Um do we know that he was a carpenter? Like, was he doing carpentry work as like a side hustle? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a good question. His dad was a carpenter for sure. And so it's a, it's a relatively large assumption that he is a carpenter too, simply because that would have been very common that you went into the same kind of business that your dad did. Yeah, she had a lot of questions around the, the human, Jesus the sure. human. Yeah, no, and I think that's, a, that's very common. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is kind of where we veer into humanity versus divinity. Was Jesus naturally perfect or did he have to overcome humanity to work toward perfection like the rest of us? Yeah. Well, so Jesus is in our belief structure, the only person, the only human being who is both 100% human and 100% divine. And so being that, it's hard to answer any question about his humanity versus his divinity because he lives fully into both, right? So um, as a, for instance, there must have been some sense in which Jesus had sin in his life because he got baptized and a part of baptism claims that we're sort of overcoming our sins or acknowledging our sins. And, and yet at the and, and likewise, you know, he gets pretty frustrated and, and, and not that anger in and of itself is a sin, but, you know, he gets frustrated with people sometimes. He overturns tables, right, because he gets ticked off. That's a part of his humanity. Uh, in his divinity, we say and acknowledge that his, his divinity claims for him the need to not grow into perfection, but that he has that perfection because he is God and therefore we struggle with that. I mean, so any question that we're going to have or try to address with regard to his humanity is always going to be influenced by the fact that we also believe he's 100% divinity, because in our heads, we're thinking, oh, well, there's like this human side versus this divine side, right? Well, that, it, it, our belief structure says, no, it's not one versus the other. It's both and all the time, mm -hmm. right? So that makes it hard. All right. Next question. How can I trust all of this information about Jesus? Is there any um, third-party texts that speak about Jesus outside of the Bible that I could turn to to learn more about who Jesus is? Because her concern was like, everything we know about him is from this one book, and that's not typically how you do research. Yeah. Well, so that's a great question again. And so there are what are known, again, as extra-biblical sources that talk to us about Jesus. There's a first-century writing from a guy named Josephus uh, who wrote about who Jesus was and talked about his life and some of his familial uh, uh, relationships. And so there's one extra-biblical source. And then, uh, interestingly enough, the Quran in, uh, in, in the Islamic tradition talks about Jesus. Not, not a lot of detail, but acknowledges that he's a prophet, acknowledges some of his life circumstances. And so you have a couple of things that are extra-biblical. And then, of course, you have post about the third century, which is long after Jesus, but uh, still a historical concept. You have lots of people beginning to write about 
what they've heard, what they've been told, these kinds of things. So yeah, there are things outside of Scripture, and uh, uh, even scriptural study over the last, golly, now, so since the 1940s, I guess it would be, so what is that, 70 years? Um, over the last 70 years or so, there have been excavations and or documents that have been found that help give us other sources as well. Mm. They're not fully complete in terms of their even their redaction and their, their translations, but we continue to find out other things. I think it's also helpful to remember that the Bible is not one book, but right. a collection right. of books yeah. and writings. And so... Because I think sometimes we think of it as like a novel that was yeah. all collected and written at once. Yeah. And so the fact that there are four different gospels that talk about Jesus, those are four different texts written at four different times by different accounts and witnesses. And so we can, that's, that's why we lean on scripture so much because that is um, the old school way of evidence. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for highlighting that, because one of the other things I forgot to say was, in the, what again, the extra-canonical or uh, extra-biblical uh, documents, so four Gospels made it into the canon, but man, there were scores of other Gospels written, and I have some compendiums. There's a book called The Complete Gospels, and it's ironic because uh, complete would suggest it's everyone ever written, right? But mm -hmm. it's not. It's only about, I think it's about 30 or 40. But so there's these other 30 or 40 Gospels that didn't make it into the canon. And of course, all of them address Jesus's life in some form or fashion. Otherwise, they wouldn't be called Gospels, right? That's the nature of a Gospel is it's about the life of Jesus. So in this particular compendium called the Complete Gospels, man, you get all kinds of interesting stuff, some of which is about Jesus's adolescence. Whether it's authentic or not is another yeah. question. Well, but she had a lot of questions about that of like, what, like, what do we know about him as a teenager? What do we know about him as a kid? Like very did, little. Yeah. Very little. Um, in, in the canon itself, literally only a couple of sentences. Do I have to believe everything the Bible says about Jesus to be a Christian, even the miracles? Hmm. That's a great question. So the scriptures themselves don't say that, that we have to believe everything. The scriptures themselves say, the New Testament, the Gospels, and, and the book of Acts in particular, uh, say we just need to believe in who Jesus is. That is, say that he's the Son of God, that he's a Savior. And if I believe that he's my Savior, then, then that's what is sufficient, if you will. And then uh, from that belief, then it becomes a way of life. So that uh, from the concept of belief, then I sort of live his teachings. That's, that's what we're supposed to be doing, is living his teachings. Whether you believe every single thing is up to you and how you believe it. So this next one is a question that, oh man, I see in our Google search terms all the time. How do I know if my belief is enough or if I don't believe enough? Yeah. And this is a very personal question for Lee because she actually, you know, within 48 hours before her baptism had a little bit of a freak out mm. and almost canceled and postponed it because she was worried like what if I don't what if I don't believe fully and I'm getting baptized in front of everybody and I'm a liar like what if this isn't really what if it's I'm only doing this because my wife is doing this like and, and sure. she kind of was battling within herself as do I believe enough yeah. to take this step yeah well so a couple of things I would just say I don't know well how can I say this I know very few followers of Jesus 
who don't struggle in some form or fashion with their belief, pure and simple, that there's, that there's not something about what we're told in Scripture or what we've been told about Jesus that we might not struggle with some portion of that, right? And then secondly, again, even in the Gospels, I, I, I just am drawn a blank on where it is. It's in Mark's Gospel. And, and one of the guys just says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. And in that statement, you hear two very powerful things. One, I believe in Jesus, I believe in who you are, and I believe in what you've done. I believe, but help my unbelief. And he's just making a very clear statement of, of reality, right? That, man, there are things that I don't always understand or things that don't always make sense to me with regard to faith, so help me. <laughs> help me get through this kind of a thing. And I, for me, that's always been a very powerful statement because it's right there in the gospel, and it basically says we're all going to be dealing with this. Mm-hmm. Is there somewhere where I can get a reliable Cliff's Notes version of Jesus's teachings <laughs> to just have a list of like, here are all the things Jesus said do? Well, so here's an interesting one. Uh, look up the Coptic Gospel of Thomas. The Coptic Gospel of Thomas contain, did not make it into the canon, right? So it's not in the Bible, but it does not contain anything that's not already in one of the four Gospels. And what's unique about Thomas's gospel, and one of the two reasons that it did not make it into the uh, canon, was it is simply a series of 114 sayings of Jesus. Every last one of them are in the gospels that made it into the canon. But all it is is a series of 114 sayings. There, there are no parables. There are no stories. There are no um, narratives of any kind. It's just 114 sayings of Jesus all of which are in the gospel. So that might be an interesting start. Mm. I don't know if that's too many or if that's too much of a cliff note. Well, do you know why books like that weren't included in the Bible? Yeah, yeah. So there were uh, four criteria that, uh, that basically were established to say, hey, this is what would make it. The first is it needed to have been written in the first century. Uh, The Coptic gospel of Thomas was not. It was written in the second century. It needed to have been written by um, what they believed was an apostle back then. And so, uh, you know, I won't go down a rabbit trail here, but Luke is not identified as one of the 12 disciples. Paul was not either, but Paul was self-proclaimed as an apostle, right? So the third was um, it needed to have frequent use among the churches. In other words, you remember all the churches Paul writes to and other communities of faith. Uh, So some of these gospels were only written and used in like one or two churches, right? So if it wasn't frequently used. And then the fourth and final one was it had to have some sense of orthodoxy. That is to say, uh, it had to have common bonds with the other books. And some some of the gospels that did make it into the canon, pretty radical, pretty weird, and clearly not orthodox. Mm. So they had to make one of those, they had to make all four of those cuts in order to make it into the canon. Mm. But, but we can read the other Gospels and books that didn't make it into the canon and still learn biblical truth. Well, I guess not biblical, but still. Yeah, well, it can be beneficial to your faith. Yeah. Uh, another example of that is, for instance, uh, Protestants versus Catholics have a different Bible too, right? And so there's what's known as the Apocrypha in the Catholic Bible. Protestants do not consider that authoritative, and yet... If we will read it, what we will find is a lot of historical data, a lot of information about why things were done the way they were done, uh, and, and likewise some information about theological concepts that we don't believe, like purgatory. One of the differences between Catholics and, and, and Protestants is the belief in purgatory. Protestants don't believe it because it's in the Apocrypha. Mm. So Catholics do. 
So when, when we go to church and we're talking about Jesus, oftentimes what we're learning is Jesus's ministry, um, his teachings, his parables, you know, all of this. Um, and then we get to the resurrection and the resurrection is really exciting and intense and meaningful. Obviously our entire faith is built on that. <laughs> But, but we don't really talk about much what happened after. And so she was wondering what happened after the resurrection, because she knows some of the teachings. She knows all about loving your neighbor and all of that stuff. She gets on board with all of that. Uh, but then this resurrection happens and it's kind of like a, a blank page after that for her. Yeah, that's an interesting thought, right? And this is why I wanted you to ask somebody like Lee, because I think that's helpful. Uh, I don't know that this answer will be helpful, but I'll, I'll give it anyway. So a couple of different things. Uh, a couple of the Gospels, uh, Luke and John in particular, give us real clear uh, information about instantly, I say instantly, like within the first 24 hours, what happens. Like in Luke's Gospel, there's this encounter called the Road to Emmaus, and, and some of the disciples who are grieving encounter Jesus walking to this community called Emmaus, and there's an encounter there, and they have a meal with him, and and their lives are transformed because they now realize, oh my gosh, he actually was raised, right? John's gospel, likewise, has a, a pretty powerful two-staged encounter where um, the, the disciples are locked behind closed doors. This is in John chapter 20, and they're scared to death. They think they're going to get killed too, just like Jesus did, and he comes, Jesus does, literally right through some doors miraculously and talks to them and shows them his hands and his side and all that kind of stuff. And that's one concept. And then literally a day later, they're out, they're all back fishing again. They're all back to their normal lives in John chapter 21. And Jesus likewise shows up again and basically commissions them or calls them to go do what it is he wants them to do. In this case, feed sheep, tend sheep, right? That is to say, help people, tend, tend to people. Then the third thing I would just say is read the book of Acts because the book of Acts kind of gives us that next level. In other words, what, what happened in the book of Acts, just real shortly, the very first chapter is Jesus basically saying to them, hey, you need to go be my witnesses. You need to go share this stuff. And then uh, from there, all kinds of stuff starts happening, and they start becoming known as people of the way, that is to say, the way of Jesus, right? So that's, I mean, that's, that's how I would answer that question. When Jesus <clears throat> came back, was he still fully human and fully divine, or at that point, was he just divine. Just spirit. Just spirit. Okay. Because then she was kind of asking like, what was his attitude when he came back? Like, was it an I told you so thing? Or was (laughs) it like, she was concerned that Jesus would be angry because he was just put through like the ultimate trauma by people. And if we, you know, there are different understandings of what was happening between the three days of the death to the resurrection, but some people believe he descended into hell and took on all of the sins of the world. So the death wasn't even the worst part of the experience. Um, So she was concerned (laughs) about like, how did he treat people when he came back? Well, again, these recordings of what I just talked about, Luke 24, John 20 and 21, and then Acts, he's really quite congenial, pleasant, a kind, gracious, as you would imagine Jesus to be. I mean, he's coming back to the very people, the disciples, who basically allowed him to get hung on the cross, right, that turned their own backs on him, Peter in particular, right? And so Jesus is very gracious, and he just says, hey, uh, so now you've— 
his basic premise is, now you understand what I was telling you before. This is what needed to happen. Now you see it. So now go do what I was asking you to do to begin with. So it's not a, I told you so kind of a thing. It is, hey, I just need you to now know this is all real. Mm -hmm. You know, this wasn't a theory. This is all real. Well, and I want to go back um, to one of the things you said, because honestly, and I'm glad that I was talking to Lee about this too, because this is something I had never thought about before of when Jesus was resurrected, is he human? Mm -hmm. And you were like, well, he comes back in spirit. Well, he... But he, did he have a body? Because he was at, he told Thomas, feel mm-hmm. my hands. And Mary uh, saw him in the garden and thought he was the gardener and, yeah. you know, all of these things. So like, it, it was it like a, a ghost experience? Well, like, would, what do we know? Yeah, yeah no, I, I agree that that's a good question. Um, so when Mary sees him in John's gospel, she tries to hug him and he says, don't touch me because I've, I've not been fully sent up. I've not been ascended. And so it, he clearly must look extremely human and perhaps even feel human. I don't know. But he even says to her, hey, it, it, don't be doing this. And then likewise, when he shows Thomas, which by the way is the second time, right? The first time Thomas wasn't there and he's showing the disciples his hands and his side but remember, he also literally walked through a door, or rather a wall. I mean, they're, lock, they're behind locked doors, and he just comes through the walls. So clearly his physical state has to be somehow different, but must look or seem quite human. Hmm. I, that's all I can say. I, I, if I'm not there and I haven't done it myself, I don't really know. Yeah. I mean, I, it's just it's flooring to me that that's something I never thought about. <laughs> <laughs> that after the resurrection, I was like, oh, Jesus is back. And I just imagined him in the exact same form that he was when he was here before. Yeah. But now he's glowing or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. He, um, he clearly must have looked highly similar. Yeah. So again, the road to Emmaus. It, he clearly looks like just some everyday common Joe, right? Because they're just talking to him. They don't recognize him. And then finally, when they sit down at a meal and break bread, i.e. communion, They recognize him in the breaking of the bread. Mm -hmm. So he clearly looks like a very normal human being. Well, it makes me think of stories that you hear of spiritual encounters where there's a person who sees somebody that nobody else sees. And they're like, didn't you see that person standing over there in the corner? And everyone else is like, there was nobody there. Um, And I don't know. It's just... I have nothing else to say around that. <laughs> so so I, I would only say this, and I, it's tagging on to some other answers in addition to this, and that is faith is faith, right? You can't prove faith. There is no fact to faith. Faith is a trust issue, and faith is a belief that something is true, whether I can prove it or not. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it's not faith, mm-hmm. right? So Well, well going back to her uh, concern on do I believe enough, is there punishment for not believing in Jesus? Mm. I think this, the punishment is sort of um, guilt or a sense of separation. And that's what we, basically that's what we identify as sin, right? Sin is missing the mark, and sin kind of creates this chasm or this uh, sense in which I feel separated from God. Not that God separates from us, but that we separate from God. And so um, to me, the punishment is simply... Um, doubt or or guilt or a sense of feeling separated from the God who loves us. Mm. It makes me think of um there was someone that I knew and and he was 
uh, much older. He was in his 70s. His wife had recently passed away, and he um, was made a career out of being a a professor of physics, and he was a very uh, uh, outspoken atheist, and he believes in science. He believes in, you know, all of these things. And so he and I... uh, we're having a conversation. He was a guest at a wedding that I was at. And um, he was at, talking to me about my faith. And it was one of those things where I kind of froze up. <laughs> I didn't know sure. what to say and what to share. But he was telling me, um, sometimes I'm envious of you mm. being able to believe because I loved my wife so much and I don't have a sense of peace and assurance of where she is right mm, now. Yeah. And I wish that I could believe in something like God, but I can't. Yeah. I can't bring myself to do it. And to me, that feels like punishment of just this fear and uncertainty. And of course, none of us can be certain, but it's the, the um, security of hoping yeah. for something greater, for yeah. something more. Yeah, so uh, uh, in, in the book of Hebrews, a New Testament book, it, it gives us a kind of a definition of faith, and I'm, I'm going to botch it a little bit here, but is the conviction of things hoped for, the assurance of things not seen. So conviction means I, I believe it wholeheartedly, right? So the conviction of things hoped for, I'm hoping that this is true. I'm hoping that God is love. I'm hoping that God can forgive me, right? So conviction of things hoped for, the assurance of things not seen. I, I, I've never seen the resurrection. I've never seen a virgin birth, right? And yet I, I profess belief in them without any form of proof, without any way to factually, scientifically say, by golly, that happened. There's no way to do that. It has to, I say it has to. If you're going to believe in it, it has to be based in faith without any proof. Just I accept it. You're, you're going to get me off. Uh, so Mark's gospel in the 16th chapter, that's the last chapter of the gospel of Mark, his resurrection account ends at verse 8. There, there's, some addition, there's some verses that are added after. It were no, the scholars know that they were added after, but it just ends. The women went away in fear and trembling and said nothing to anyone. Hmm. And you just have to go, well, first of all, how is it that they could have said nothing to anyone? I mean, how is that even possible, number one? And number two, because of that, there is no sighting of a raised body in Mark's gospel. There is no sighting of a raised Jesus. There's simply an empty tomb. Well, by golly, when you think about that, what takes more faith? To, to see the, the risen Jesus and see his hands in his, his side or to, to, to leave an empty tomb and believe and trust that that must have been what happened without ever seeing it. Because in Mark's gospel, nobody ever sees the raised Jesus. Nobody. Hmm. How fascinating is that? Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, you read, you read verses 9 to 20 of chapter 16, which is clearly an addition, and any Bible you read, it will say, either in a footnote or the way it's formatted or whatever, these verses were added after the fact. Hmm. Which, by the way, is where snake handling is. The one verse about snake handling is in those verses. Oh, between. really? Yep, yep, yep. Huh. Do you know anything about why that was added, just out of curiosity? Well, scholars believe it was added because it was so radical. 
It was radical that if, as the first gospel, as most scholars believe, Mark is the first gospel written, not every scholar, but most do, that it was too radical of an idea that nobody saw the raised Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so, golly, we got to... So it was out of fear of... The lack of belief. That not that ironic? It's that's the point. <laughs> the lack right? of we don't think people will believe this, but yet the message was spread. If this is the first account, and the first account is people did not see a raised body, and yet the message was still spread that Jesus is alive. The body is Correct. not there. But now later on, we're doubting that people will get that. Well, yeah, we're questioning whether people will believe it, right? Yeah. Because again, it goes to this whole issue of belief conviction of things hoped for. I hope there was a resurrection, Mm -hmm. but I didn't see a raised body, right? But that's not faith. Faith Mm -hmm. is, I trust and I believe even when I can't see it. Mm -hmm. And for all of us in the 21st century, we have to have that kind of faith, right? Because we didn't see an empty tomb. We didn't see a raised Jesus. We didn't see any of this stuff. I I am leaning towards, I prefer the word hope to belief because mm. belief feels more concrete. I don't know why, but um, to say you believe in Jesus versus I hope for mm. Jesus, I hope that all of this is I hope true. That it's true. Yeah. I hope that all of this is real and I'm going to lean into that hope. That feels more attainable mm. to someone who is just learning about Jesus for the first sure. time of yeah. like, you don't have to make the choice to believe wholeheartedly in everything that you read. But right. I mean, we all hope that God, like you said, we hope God is love. We right. hope that what Jesus taught us about who God is, is true. Right. Right. Hmm. How do you think that Jesus changed the world. Because sometimes when we look around, the world feels like it's just as a corrupt place as it was in Bible times. Yeah. Well, so again, I have to reflect on Scripture, and I go back to the book of Acts, and I think based on what the book of Acts tells us, um, for that early church, the, the first church, uh, he clearly changed people's lives, and he clearly changed the way people lived, and he changed the way people related to each other. Uh, you read Acts chapter two and Acts chapter four, for instance, and it's a, excuse me, it's a radical shift in how people conduct their lives, and it's based on a belief in Jesus. What happens is humanity. I mean, we're human, right? And so we're full of fault and full of sin. And by golly, just like the Hebrews that we read about in the Hebrew scriptures kept getting it wrong or kept not figuring it out, just like the disciples who are extremely close to Jesus thought they'd figured it out, but clearly he got frustrated with them because they never figured it out. We get it wrong. And so I still believe Jesus has impact and I still believe Jesus uh, uh, has transformed the world. But yeah, we're still messed up and we still don't get it right. And I, in my own life, I mess it up a lot and I don't figure it out a lot. And there are times when I get something right and I'm actually kind and gracious and loving as Jesus asked me to be or forgiving of somebody when I, you know, they don't necessarily deserve it. And I'll, I'll get that right. But more often than not, I don't get it right because I'm human. And so that's why it, it can feel very much like, well, by golly, what's the point? I mean, because like you we said, we reverted back pretty quickly. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. But you still see what I call communities of faith, even to this day, that while not perfect by any stretch, um, still have what I would call radically transformed lives about the ways in which they live into the teachings of Jesus. Because 
just like we see faith communities, Christian faith communities that are not living very Christ-like and therefore create chaos and, and, and do bad things or wrong things or whatever, there are communities of faith that are getting it more right than wrong, mm-hmm. and that, that gives me hope. Yeah. My, my guess is we don't hear about those communities as often because if they're living more into the lifestyle of Jesus, they're living into humility. That's correct. And they're not broadcasting That's correct. everything that they're doing. That's correct. And it's just, just trying to walk the walk yep. all yep. the time. Absolutely. Um, which as a marketer is really frustrating because <laughs> I'm like, market yourselves. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let everyone know that you can be like this right. as a Jesus follower. Right. Yeah. But then I don't know, pride and greed and all that slowly creeps in. Dadgum humans. I know. I know. Well, those were all of the the really big questions. I promised you I wasn't gonna try and stump you. <laughs> but there were well, some really good this. yeah, there Hope were some really helpful. good questions in here. Yeah, tell Lee thanks. Thanks for being genuine and thanks for offering up a, a part of her faith and, and her journey. Oh yeah. That's and really I'm cool. sure she'll she'll come to me and be like, I have more questions. So we might hey, do right. a follow up yeah. on who is Jesus of Nazareth because honestly we talked a lot about uh, Jesus the person, but we didn't really talk a lot about any of Jesus's teachings yeah, specifically, yeah. and yeah. that's a lot of who he is. That's right. And so he was a rabbi. Yeah. So let's do a follow up. Who is Jesus the rabbi? Yeah. <laughs> let's do it. All right. Thanks, Daniel. You bet. The Life Plus God podcast is hosted, written, and produced by me, Alyssa Robinson, and sponsored by Treach Memorial United Methodist Church in Flower Mound, Texas. If you live in the Flower Mound area, I invite you to stop by and see if Treach could be your new church family. You can learn more about all of our programs and events at tmumc.org. And I hope to catch you next week for our next episode of the Life Plus God podcast.